I lived in Mustang, Oklahoma. One of my best friends, his name was Tanner Myers, and they had a pretty big, decent land, uh, pro- lot of property. Um, they had a little over an acre. And so in the very backyard of their house, um, they had a big backyard. They had some like wood, a, a, a tree line of woods, and then behind that tree line was a railroad track. All right. And so this railroad track, uh, we would go and we'd do very stupid things around it, right? Um, we would do the normal things of like sticking coins on there, waiting for the, the train to go over and see it, flatten it. Um, I won't tell you the other nefarious things that we did. But um, one of the things that was, I, I remember just a little bit down the track, we would go and it was one of those, it was where the railroad switch was, you know what I'm talking about? Um, there's a picture up here, it, like where the fork in the road kind of goes for the train, right? And so um, it's just like, if you really stop and consider this, it's pretty remarkable, right? Like a train is this immense piece of machinery, right? Huge, huge, heavy weight. Just, I mean, none of us could even begin to fathom trying to move it out of our own strength, right? But you have this track and there's a railroad switch And in comparison to the immensity of a train, you have small pieces of metal that can switch over and redirect the entire direction of how a train is moving, which is, I mean, if you just kind of wrap your head around it, it just kind of blows your mind. The smallness is is able to switch and move the immensity of this massive piece of machinery in the direction that it's going. And so... What I'm wanting us, for, wanting us to do tonight is we've kind of had a direction that we've been going looking at Jesus, all right? So the first two weeks, what we've done is we've looked at the person of Jesus. We've looked at the nature of who Christ is, that he's fully God and that he's fully man, all right? So he had to be fully God because only God could wrestle with and win against the sting of death. Only God can do that. There's none of us that are in this room that can actually go up against death and overcome death. God had to come into the world to deal with our deepest, darkest problem, and that was death. But not only was Jesus fully God, he's also fully man. And he had to be fully man because he needed a life that he could physically lay down on our behalf, both to die and then to be physically resurrected from the grave. Only what Jesus assumed in terms of this humanity could he also heal with his resurrection. So he had to come and he had to fully take on a human body. He had to come and fully take on human emotions. He had to come and have a completely human mind. Like he had to have all of these things in order that whenever he was resurrected from the grave, that our full resurrected bodies could be entirely healed. And so we have, if you step back and think about who this Jesus is, He is an immense being, isn't he? Fully God and fully man. And so we've tried to gaze the first two weeks of this series at the immensity of who this Jesus is, the person of Christ, just the very nature by which he entered into this world, lived, died, and rose again. That's what we've done the first two weeks. Now I'm attempting for us to make this switch, all right? So we're going from looking at the person of Christ And now we're wanting to switch over to think about the work of Christ, what Jesus came into the world to actually do, all right? So just the immensity of who Jesus is and trying to change direction feels 
pretty heavy, but that's what we're going to attempt to do tonight, all right? And so what we're looking at is the work of Jesus. And if you can just summarize what the work of Jesus is, the reason that he came into this world is to win our freedom from Satan, sin, and death. Jesus entered into this world, fully God, fully man, in order to win our freedom from Satan, sin, and death. And so if you're trying to look throughout all the course of the Bible to summarize just the immensity of what Christ did in his life, death, and resurrection, there's three particular roles that people try to summarize the work that Christ did here in this world, and it's prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. These are really important roles in the uh, life of God's people, Israelites. Um, they had These were anointed individuals, people that were laid aside, for the work that was to be done amongst God's people. And so over the three weeks, these next three weeks, so this Sunday and the two that are following, we're going to look at these three roles to understand what Jesus accomplished for us in his work, his life, death, and resurrection here in this world. And so tonight, we're going to begin by looking at the office or the role of a prophet from Mark 1. All right? So before I kind of switch over transition into this, I want to just give you an understanding of what I'm not saying, all right? Because I think it's kind of important. So this does not deny what we have already declared about Jesus, that he is fully God. Two weeks ago, John 1, we looked at how Jesus is fully God, that he's eternal, and amongst other things, he's this lasting, he was here before creation, he was here and accomplished everything for us, he's the one that is going to be for eternity, he's the very purpose and reason that we can actually have a relationship with God because God put on human flesh and died the death that we were supposed to die. It's all because of this that we are able to step into relationship with God. And we're not denying this by saying that Jesus is prophet. There are some religious thoughts and trains of thought that would say, that would declare Jesus as only a prophet, all right? That's not what we're saying when we declare Jesus as prophet. He came and fulfilled this office of prophet. What we are saying is that Jesus was the mouthpiece of God. Okay, Jesus communicated God's message to God's people on God's behalf. And Jesus, as we looked at in John chapter 1, as the word of God, is the ultimate expression of the role of prophet amongst God's people. That's what we're trying to say here, all right? So we're not saying denying the, the deity of Jesus, but we are saying that he is the fulfillment. He's even greater than any prophet that had ever come. Does that make sense? Okay, so... Since this is the case, we also need to ask the question, well, if Jesus played out the role of prophet, if he is the ultimate expression of prophet, the role of a prophet amongst God's people, then what was his message, right? What was his message that he came and he preached and he declared to all of God's people and those that even expanded beyond God's people? What's the message that he came to declare? Well, our passage that we're looking at tonight gives us the answer. Mark 1, 14 through 15. And so here's what I want us to do tonight, all right? I want us to look at the three pieces of Jesus' message, all right? There's three pieces to this message that's declared in these two small verses. The first one is this, the time is fulfilled. The second is the kingdom of God has come near. And then third, repent and believe the good news. So we're going to work through these three pieces, and then we'll conclude with some application. Amen? 
All right, let's start with the time is fulfilled. We see this in verses 14 and 15. I'm going to reread it so you can kind of have your mind refreshed as we're working through it. So verse 14 says this. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, and the time is fulfilled is what Jesus said. All right? So Mark starts off with some really important context for us here, all right? He says, after John was arrested, all right? So we're only 14 verses in, but if you really unpack Mark chapter 1, there's a lot that has happened. So uh, Mark is speaking of John the Baptist, all right? I mean, you've heard songs. You can kind of get mental pictures about who this John the Baptist is. The purpose of John the Baptist was to come and prepare the way for the long-promised Christ, right? And so we see this in the very few first verses of Mark chapter 1. Um, Mark quotes a couple of previous Old Testament passages, these prophets that were speaking and prophesying of the coming Jesus. And so we look at Mark 1, 2 through 3. This is what it says to John the Baptist. See, I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. And so John has done all of this. And what we see in verse 14, John has been arrested. And so all the work that John had been doing, he's now removed from the scene. And then we see Jesus enter into this vacancy. And what we see Mark say in verse 14 is that he came proclaiming the good news of God. And in the midst of this, we can ask the question, what is the first piece of Jesus' message, which is the very first part of verse 15? The time is fulfilled. And so interpretation of that, Jesus is stating two things here. Stating two things. The first one is that the work of this John the Baptist is done. The work of this John the Baptist is done. The time of of preparation and trying to prepare God's people for the coming Messiah has passed. The preaching of John in the wilderness, that they were to repent, to feel the weight of their sin, and to be looking towards and waiting for this coming Messiah, to kind of put some action to these words that they may profess off of their mouth. John did these baptisms of repentance. That was an outward sign of showing that they were ready and their hearts were receptive for this coming Messiah to come. And all that work that God was doing through John to soften and ready hearts for Christ, look, it's finished. The time is fulfilled. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is that your waiting is over, is what Jesus is saying here. Your waiting is over. Not only is the time of preparation for the coming Messiah over, the waiting for the actual arrival of the Messiah is over. That's what Jesus is declaring as he says the time of, is fulfilled. What he is saying is the, f- the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15 is here. The one who has come to crush the head of Satan is here. This is what Jesus is proclaiming as he's filling this void of John after he's been arrested. So um, there's this trend right now amongst athletes that uh, after they make like a very big play, they have this small little phrase that they're saying now, all right? I don't know if I'm cool enough to do this, but you can go with me, all right? Um, so what they do is, like, if you're, uh, if you're watching basketball, if there's a guy in the, uh, the NBA that goes and hits a last-second shot to win the game, he may run over. He's in the midst of his, like, his team, or he's standing on, like, top of the, 
the sound booth, and he'll stand up and he says, I'm, I'm him. I'm him. It could be football. If you're watching football, you can have a receiver that breaks away from the whole entire rest of the defense, catches a long ball, gets into the end zone as time elapses, the team wins. He's standing in front of the camera that's amidst all of the media, and he's standing, he's looking at it, and he's saying, I'm him, all right? What they're doing is they're quoting a rapper, um, and he's given this line, he has this line, I'm him, and what he's doing, he's trying to embody, he's trying to pack in just these two small little words. It's a declaration of the person's greatness or their dominance, all right? And so in the midst of like this celebration, you have these athletes that are basically looking around at all the people that are in the stands and are saying, are you looking for the best? Are you looking for the person that can carry the weight of the time and the moment? Are you looking for the person that can actually go and achieve against some of the best people in their whole entire field? I'm him. Look at my dominance. Look at my greatness before everybody else. You've seen it put before you. It's almost like if you're watching Russell Crowe um, saying, are you not entertained? It's like they're doing the live embodiment of it. You know what I'm saying? And so in the midst of all of this, this is what Jesus is doing here. When he says the time is fulfilled without the arrogance and the theatrics that maybe some of these athletes would do this, Jesus does not just come proclaiming God's message Jesus is saying, I am the message. Jesus isn't just coming and stating, hey, here's what God's going to do. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that's going to fulfill all that God had promised. I'm the one. I'm him. I'm the one that can carry the burden of your sin. I'm the one that can actually follow through with the commands that God has placed on you, and I can do it to perfection. I'm the one that can go and stay on the cross and finally seal the punishment that you deserve and God's wrath against you is done away with. I'm, the, I'm him. I'm the one. I can stand up and I can carry the burden and the weight that you can't. I can do it in your place. That's what Jesus is coming and saying here when he says the time is fulfilled. And so look, this is big news Imagine being the Israelites. Imagine being God's people after just having seen John the Baptist do amazing things in the wilderness. You saw Jesus baptized by this John. You see the anointing of Jesus as he is baptized by John, comes out of the waters. The heavens open up. They literally tear open. You hear an audible voice coming down from heaven. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, anointing him for all the work that he's going to do. And then Jesus comes and he makes this declaration. If you're God's people, thousands upon thousands of years of waiting, and then Jesus comes declaring, I'm him. I'm him. Like, I'm talking, your heart is beating out of your chest if you are these people. So, Jesus, as the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, not just embod- not just speaking the message of, Jesus, of, of God, but actually being the message to the whole entire world, this is what Jesus comes proclaiming. So it's the first one, all right? The second one we see as we transition um, is the coming of God has come near. This is the second piece to Jesus' message as the prophet, the mouthpiece 
of God is that the kingdom has come near. We see this in verse 15. So the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. The message of Jesus isn't just defeating our greatest threat. He's not just stating, I'm him. There's also a benefit here, all right? There's a benefit. There's a gift that comes with this coming kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't just deal and defeat our greatest enemy. He actually gives us something in return, and it's the very kingdom of God. And so we're going to deal more with this whenever we look at Jesus as king. So briefly, I just want to hit this, all right? So try to keep up with me as I'm trying to move forward here. What is meant by the kingdom here, right? What is meant by the kingdom of God? The message of the kingdom is at least two things, all right? The first one is freedom. Freedom. So whenever you have two kingdoms that clash, when you have two kingdoms that are warring against one another. The one that is good is warring against the one that is bad in order to release the captives that are under the darkness of the evil empire. You see what I'm saying? And so look, what Jesus is saying with the the coming of God's kingdom, he's saying sin has enslaved you, but Christ has come to liberate you. That's what the coming of the kingdom, the pronouncement of this kingdom is, is that this Jesus has come to free you from the shackles of sin that have weighed you down for your entire life. That's the first one. We'll deal more fully with that in a couple of weeks. The second one is this. It means presence. The coming of God's kingdom means his presence. The greatest loss that we had in Genesis chapter 3, the loss of God's presence. When we were cast out of the garden, Jesus is coming to recover the presence of God with his people by declaring and pronouncing the kingdom of God. Now, this is not just a future reality. We have to pay attention to the way that Jesus phrases this. He's speaking in the present Tense. So the benefit of God's kingdom is that it has come near and that this God lives up with us, look, now. The coming, the pronouncement, Jesus entering into this world is the pronouncement that God has come back. His presence can dwell with you again. This means at least a couple of things, all right? One, it means empowerment, all right? If we are called to live life with God under the rule of God, we have to take a really strong look at us and our propensities. And if we look at our propensities, we look that we are not prone towards drifting to God, but drifting away from God. And so if the pronouncement of the kingdom has come, there needs to be an empowerment that comes with this kingdom in order to live under this rule of God. And whenever Jesus declares the coming of this kingdom, he's saying, the power's coming with it. You see this in John 14 from the very words of Jesus himself in verse 26. He says, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. So look, he's saying the Holy Spirit, fully God, is going to come and live within you. And then he's going to remind you and strengthen you of everything I, Jesus, have told you and instructed you in order that you may walk and obey them. The very thing that we are incapable of because of our sinful nature, Jesus is saying, the Holy Spirit, God himself, will come and live within you, empowering you to live this life that I have called you to live. 
This is mind-blowing, all right? For us that are on this side of Jesus, this seems like a normal thing that we've heard from people like me that are standing up on stage preaching to a crowd like you. But what you have to put yourself in their shoes, they are used to going to a particular person in a particular place, a person that is advocating for them in order for them to have some semblance of a relationship with God. God dwelled physically in a particular place, only one place at this point in time. Jesus is coming and declaring, God goes with you wherever you go, and now this life that you could not live because you had to come and lay down sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice to be made right with God, he comes and lives forever with you. And he empowers you. So not only is this something that like, we actually get to live the life that God has called us to live, but it's actually for our enjoyment as well. All right? So all we are able to live in God's love now is what, what Mark is saying, what Jesus is saying through this particular message. Again, John 14, out of the words of Jesus himself, he says, My Father will love him, speaking of all those that trust in Jesus, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So look, whenever you declare faith in Christ for all that he's done for you, this God comes to live and dwell with you. And as you get, not only are you empowered to live life under his rule, you're actually enabled to experience and live within the love that he's expressed towards you. This is what Jesus means when he declares the kingdom of God has come near. Everything that these people had been waiting for, the presence of God with his people is here. This is what Jesus comes declaring. Now here's what the question that should be stirring inside of us and was definitely stirring inside of those people that were hearing what Jesus was saying is the question how? How is this possible? Like how can I get this access? How, what do I need to do? Which leads us to the third piece of Jesus' message here in Mark 15, 115, which is repent and believe the good news. Again, all 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So in the final piece to his message, Jesus gives us the answer to that question of how. How do we receive freedom from our enslavement to sin? How do we receive the benefits of God's kingdom, both empowerment and enjoyment, living in the love of God here and now? Mark's answer, Jesus' answer is we repent and believe the good news. So, Let's just take those two words, repent and believe. Let's try to dissect them for a second, all right? What do we mean by repent? My favorite explanation of repentance comes from this catechism. It's just like these bite-sized chunks of what we believe in the Christian faith from the Heidelberg Catechism, and it says this. Repentance is to be genuinely sorry for sin, to hate it more and more, and then to run away from it. All right, so three pieces to repentance genuinely sorry for sin. Look, there's, it's possible to have sorrow over sin without sincerity. Okay? The Bible pits what's called worldly sorrow against godly sorrow. All right? Worldly sorrow 
is like regret that you screwed up or maybe even embarrassed over a mistake that you've made that you were actually caught in this particular mistake, but it only deals with like the initial peripheral symptoms of this mistake rather than the actual disease of sin that lies within your soul, okay? And so it, it's just this regret that, man, I got caught. Um, maybe not necessarily that you would even turn away from this or try to not attempt to do it. You just would try to make sure you're not getting caught the next time. You know what I'm saying? Godly sorrow is different. See, worldly sorrow focuses on regret, but godly sorrow focuses on the heart, all right? This godly sorrow addresses the disease of sin that lives deep within our souls because it takes responsibility for it, all right? Not to, like, get super cheesy, but, like, it's saying, I'm the problem, right? Not to quote Taylor Swift, but... I'm the problem. It's me, right? That's what she says. Like, that's what we all should say. It's me. I'm the problem. Now, whenever we own our sin in this way, like when there's a godly sorrow, this sorrow, like, here's what it looks like, all right? This type of godly sorrow is maybe an act that you did in private, but you bring it to light in public, all right? Here's what I mean. Like, if you committed this wrong in private where nobody else would see you, but you feel the wreckness over your own soul that you go and you confess it to someone else that has no idea about it because of how it has so affected the regret and the sorrow that is living deep in your soul even though nobody else is aware of it. And you come and you deal with that sin. You take responsibility for that sin. I did this. This is my problem. I'm the one that needs to turn away from this. Would you please forgive me for this wrong that I've done against you even though you had no idea about it? This is godly sorrow. This is what it looks like to actually be genuinely sorry for sin. This is the first step towards repentance, all right? Gives, you a, gives us a second one, which is that we grow in our hatred for it more and more, all right? There's this growing disgust over your sin. Thomas Brooks puts it like this. Repentance is the vomit of the soul, all right? It's like your stomach has turned sour because you are seeing the actual dwelling of sin, the nature of sin that inhabits you and it disgusts you, right? Like it, it causes the sour stomach that it's the vomit of your soul. And here's how this happens, all right? This happens by a growing knowledge of two things. One, your sin, like we just said, but also the holiness of God. That you are beginning to see yourself more fully in light of what the Bible tells us and what the wreck of sin does on our life, but you're also looking at the Bible and you're seeing the perfectness of God, that he is without sin. He's perfect, no flaw. There's nothing that would come and dilute him, that would mar him as we experience here in this world. He's perfect. And as you catch a glimpse of both of these things, your sin and the holiness of God, the result is that there's a growing hatred more and more over this sin. And then it leads to the final aspect of repentance is that you run away from it, all right? So you've taken ownership over it. There's genuine sorrow. You're growing in your hatred over your sin. And then the final step is that you begin to run the opposite direction. Like this becomes your life commitment. I'm running away from this life of sin and I'm running it somewhere else. And so you're basically essentially like the cry of your soul is, I'm done with it. 
I'm done with this. I'm done with sin. All right? So that's the first part. Now, making a personal commitment against sin is a good thing, but it's only half the message. All right? So if you're running away from something, the opposite end of that is you have to run to something. Right? So Jesus says, come and repent, and then what? Believe. Repent and then believe, which is the second part here. In repentance, we turn away from our sinful, opposing life to God. And in belief, we run to the gospel or the good news, is what Jesus declares in his statement. And so one of my favorite pastors in the whole world, Tim Keller, he puts it like this. He's how he describes the gospel. Gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that's been done for you that changes your status forever. All right, so he says that this word gospel had currency at this point in time. This wasn't just a word that Jesus made up and then filled it with meaning. He's actually using a word that, pre that was going on and being used before his arrival here in this world. And so what you see is you actually see like the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And so what it's basically working through is the birth and the coronation of this king of Rome, Augustus, and is working through the whole story of how that happened. Like there's, there's immense meaning and purpose to this word gospel. Now, Jesus is using it in a very highly used form that we continue to use today. So this gospel or this good news, this historic event that has happened that changes our status forever, the message that we run to when we repent, we run away from, and the message that we run to is the cross of Christ. That's what Jesus is coming and proclaiming. The cross is where God's love and justice meet in human history. The love of God and the mercy of God meet at the cross of Christ. This Jesus whom the Father loved before the world was even created is delivered over to pay the penalty of our sin. You can compact it and say it like this, the God of the universe hung on a tree for you and me. That's the gospel that we run to. This is the gospel that we believe in. When we repent and turn away from a life against an opposing God, we're running to this message of the cross of Christ that says, I have stood in your place. All of my benefits are now yours. That's what we run to. So now, look, here's my fear, all right? Here's my fear. Even though I've tried to work through like this understanding of what repent and believe means, I fear that we hear this message and it's met with dread rather than delight, all right? Because here's the reality, whether you've spent very little time in the church or you spent a lot of time in the church, we've all heard particular messages that make it sound like God is this judgmental figure that's looking down on us with disgust. When we hear this term repent and believe, we get this condemning sense about God when we hear this particular message. You're nothing but a disappointment. Repent and believe. It's kind of what we and picture in our heads. Anybody there with me? Anybody have that kind of like message going on in your own soul that God almost enjoys inflicting shame and guilt on us from his heavenly throne? Maybe that's even your take after my poor attempt to explain what repent and believe is. All right? The truth is that the delight of God of the Bible is mercy and not judgment. 
You know what pleases God's heart? Is pouring out his love and affection for you. That's the delight of the Bible, of the God of the Bible. In all the Bible, the only time that God is described as rich is whenever it's describing his mercy. Throughout all of the Bible, the one that owns a cattle on a thousand hills, that there's no lack of resources to this God. The only time that he's particularly described as rich is when it comes to his mercy. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. Look, you are saved by grace. The delight of his heart is pouring out his kindness and his mercy and his love on you. And the whole reason that Jesus even hasn't come back yet is because God is rich in mercy and he wants so many people to experience this kindness that he has towards us. This is what he says in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord does not delay his promise that he's coming back for us again as some understand delay, but is patient with you. Like speaking of the world, he's patient with you. Not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He's saying, I want all people to experience what the genuine delight of my heart is, and that is my love for you. That we are restored. The way that I created this world, that I get to live amongst you, physically present, and dwell with you for all eternity, so you can find your complete joy and satisfaction in me. That is the delight of my heart. That's what repent and believe means. So look, the proper picture of God is not a put-out dictator. Like, get that out of your head. The proper picture of who God is is a loving and expectant father. This loving father that whenever you as a child have run away, that he takes action in pursuing after you. The one that recognizes, even though we are incapable of seeing it, understands what the barrier is and pays all penalty for it. Like he's paid the full way back to this very God. Not even his most prized possession has been withheld in purchasing your redemption, which is his son. Like he's basically saying, look, my pockets are turned inside out for you. There's nothing left in heaven for me to give. That's the message what Jesus is saying when he says repent and believe the good news. And so look, the application, or maybe more the invitation for all of us, is really the same. It's to repent and believe. If we were to listen to this mouthpiece of God, Jesus who is the definitive message of God to a watching world, it's to repent and believe. Look, for some of us, this may be for the very first time. What God is saying to you is to repent, give up the life that can't even live up to what it promises you. This life 
that is opposed from God, that you're living apart from God, the promises that it places before you that if you do this, you'll find complete satisfaction. If you take up this good gift that I've given to this world and you put it in a high and lofty place where it doesn't deserve, it can't bear the weight of all the expectations that you put on it. Any type of denouncement of God where we're turning to something else, it can't live up to the promise. So look, God's not even telling you to give up something good. He's saying, give up the thing that's going to lead to your death. And then believe, receive the mercy that God is so eager to extend to you. This is his kind, gracious invitation to you. So maybe for the very first time you're saying, I need to take that step. I need to turn away from my previous life and turn to this good news of the gospel. But the same message for those that if you've been walking with Jesus for a month, if you've been walking with Jesus for a year, if you've been walking with him for 40 years, the message is still the same of repent and belief. Martin Luther, an old Christian, puts it like this. He's the one that did the 95 thesis on the wall. Everybody remember that? The very first of those theses is this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. This is not just a one-time event. It's a new lifestyle. This is the new norm for you that have trusted in Jesus and have said, I'm going to walk with this Jesus for the rest of eternity. Not just this life, but for the rest of eternity. Um, Another way of kind of saying this is to to view it as a one-time event. This idea of repent and believe is a one-time event is actually living poor while you're actually rich. Right? So I heard this Pastor Warren Wearsby put it like this. There was this wealthy businessman in the late 1800s, early 1900s. His name is William Randolph Hearst. And uh, he once read about this valuable piece of artwork. And he was determined to add it to his collection that he was piecing together over his life. And so he instructed his agent to go and scour the galleries of the world to find it, no matter what the cost may be. All right? He wanted this masterpiece. And after months of painstaking search, this agent that William Randolph Hearst had commissioned to go and find this piece of artwork reported back to William himself that the piece already belonged to Hearst. All right? It was just off in like this warehouse that had been sitting there for years. And so this thing that Hearst so wanted deep down in his soul It was already just sitting in one of his storage spaces somewhere off with all the other pieces of collection of artwork that he had already gathered. And so look, you may feel that there is more to this Christian life. Maybe you're looking at your experience as a Christian right now. And you're like, man, if I could just get more of Jesus, if I could just have more parts of the Holy Spirit, if I could just have more power, if I could just have more blessings, and you, I mean, you could keep going on on this list. The resources, look, the resources of God aren't rationed to you one by one as if they're ever going to run out. That's not how God works towards you. Look, there's not even this unlocked spiritual combo that's reserved only for a select few to know. That like the rest of us are just trying to figure out and we're trying to find the ones that have the perfect combo to where we get to live the fullness of Jesus here in this life. No, that's not how God works. He's rich in mercy. So maybe 
for us, if you're experiencing your experience of walking with Jesus in this life feels shallow and doesn't feel like it's quite what you signed up for, and maybe because you need to return to the initial message of repent and belief, that you need to look at your life and is there any fraction of me that is actually still going towards the old life and not living in full in the new life that Christ has won for me? Is there something I need to turn from and that I turn to this good news of Jesus? Because look, he's not holding out on you. You get the kingdom. Not just in the future, but now. You get to live and the love of God now. He's given you the Holy Spirit so that you can walk with strength in this life with him. You are weak. He is strong. So look, the promised Messiah has come. He's him. <laughs> if I can be corny for a second. The kingdom of God has come. Fully. Or, no, not fully. In part, we'll experience it in full when Jesus comes back again. That's why we call this Advent. We're longing, we're waiting for it. But we get to experience it now. And so look, we can take hold of it through repentance and belief. Belief in this life-altering news that Jesus changes your status forever. Genesis 3.15. There's this promised one that is going to crush Satan. And look, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says this, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Sin defeated. Death defeated. Satan defeated. Your broken, weak flesh will be resurrected with him because he was resurrected fully God and fully man. The work of Christ, the pronouncement of the work that he came to do, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Same message for all. May we repent. May we believe. And may we understand that it's the delight of our God's heart to pour out his love for you. To experience it here today. Let's pray, asking that God would give us the ability to experience that here and now.